Now for the rest of you, we are going to resume our place in 1 Corinthians and we open to 1 Corinthians 13, a chapter that is the traditional substance of a wedding ceremony. Um, I had to introduce it that way, otherwise you might have wondered who was getting married today when I read these verses. It is a classic description of divine love. It's a passage that is celebrated, a passage that to many is endearing. And what's remarkable about it is that despite its pop cultural significance and even its celebration, it's a passage that when you take it seriously can so easily crush you. If you read a biblical description of what love is, it doesn't take long to realize that we all fall short of it. Recently, as my wife and I went through our second uh, viewing of the, the season, or rather the entire series of The Office, at the end of that show, this verse is getting read. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. As if it were something beautiful, again, endearing, something that we all ought to aspire to. But I want you to hear it. Hear it and actually imagine being and living and embodying this thing. And when you do... It will become clear the more how badly we need a Savior. So please, bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to hear these familiar verses in a new light. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we confess that when we come to your word, some of the most powerful things that are said inside of it really have no effect on our souls because we're so familiar with them, Lord. We have been challenged precious little to reflect upon them. We have been challenged perhaps not at all by the world about us. Who's ready to quote these verses as if they're wonderful. As if they're even sentimental. When in fact they're radical. Lord, they point us to the living Jesus Christ without whom we would have no hope in life or in death. May we find him here, we pray. This day, in his name, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. So Trinitas Church, I'm going to read these verses. When I'm finished, uh, we will respond. I'll say this is God's word. You can respond, thanks be to God. And we'll sing a short verse together, the Gloria Patri, to give thanks for the Holy Scriptures. So please, follow along. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is God's word. And good singing with the acoustics of a house church. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. <laughs> Trinitas Church, this verse was not written for a wedding. As we've been going through 1 Corinthians for almost two years now, this was written to a church. The point at which the Apostle Paul felt inclined to tell us this grand description of love is in the context of a church and of worshiping believers. What a better day to consider this as we receive new members of our church and baptize three children. Despite the popularity at weddings, I'll say again, this is for the church. We've just gotten done reading 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3 last week, where we read essentially that every single pursuit in life is meaningless 
lest love be both the source of it and the fruit of it. Put the matter simply, whatever you may be pursuing in life, if you are being rendered less loving by it, it's meaningless, says Paul. And this raises the question, therefore, what is this grand grace of the Holy Spirit? Funny thing about love is that really we cannot determine, despite our best efforts to be or to do these things, we can't just decide to be this way. When we take this seriously, even as believers, we can be crushed by it if we lose sight of Christ. We have 15 descriptions all in a row successively about what this love is that Paul speaks of and commends to this body of believers. My hope is that as we expound them, we will be left longing, longing to manifest it, longing to be the people so described. There aren't three points to this sermon. There aren't four points to this sermon. What we are going to do is engage in one successive definition of love. And I hope that you will be inspired to love it. There are 15 descriptions as said, so we begin in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love, we are told, is patient. What this word fundamentally means is it has the power and capacity to wait. Many of us in this room, we await a new job. We await a time when we'll be relieved of our financial burdens, whatever it may be. But most of all, what Paul has in mind is waiting on and being patient with whining kids, immature friends, hot-tempered wives, and gossiping husbands. I'm sure that's the combination most of us are used to. Consider impatience. What is it? Impatience does a certain violence to any object toward which it is impatient. See, I used to be a rather rapacious hiker. I would try to get as many hiking miles under my belt as I could. When I was in my 20s, if a hike was under eight miles, then it absolutely was not for me because I had calculated that at eight miles, that is when you get rid of almost all day hikers. Eight miles and 2,000 feet. So if it was any less than that, it was not a hike I wanted to go on and I would select very carefully whom I would go with. People, of course, who could keep up. I think it was my grandfather's death in 2000. I want to say five or six, that um, I went up Mount Pilchuck with my mom and with her sisters, all, of course, in a different age group than myself. And it was painfully difficult to wait on those with me. But had I pulled any further, had I attempted to get them up the mountain more quickly, it would have done violence to everyone involved. That's what happens when we're impatient. The thing about patience is that if you simply resolve to be patient with people, you will find yourself reaching the end of your patience very quickly. And in fact, you cannot be patient as a disposition in a godly way but for Christ. In short, when we're patient with anyone, we've got to be able to answer the question, what are we waiting for? What are we hoping to occur? And to have patience in life, you have got to have promises that you are waiting on and expectantly hoping to come to pass. You've got to be able to explain why you're so confidently waiting. Patience requires a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and his promises if it is going to be the disposition of your life. 
David says in Psalm 27, verses 13 to 14, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Trinitas Church, we have a ground of patience in Jesus Christ and without a constant understanding of him, whatever patience we muster will be temporary. It won't be a disposition of our being. The moment we've so described love is involving patience. We're met with an objection. But Brant, if I'm just patient all the time, couldn't I grow negligent or perhaps apathetic? Patience is simply a matter of waiting. And that's why Paul does add that patience is not it. Love is patient, but it's also kind. I would suggest that kindness has fallen on certain hard times, to be honest with you. Kindness... At its root, and the Greek word that's used here is a sort of disposition of preparedness to be useful and to give and to be gracious. And when you look at someone and you say, you know, you look like you could use a friend or a hand or an invitation or something like that, it's a basic gesture of kindness. But to be kind and to be helpful, to be kind and truly helpful, you've got to have some idea of what people really need. If you don't have any idea of what your neighbor needs or what would be an ideal condition for him or her, in truth, what you call kindness is not kindness at all. It will be what our culture practices. Just giving people what they want. Do you realize that giving people what they want, although it bears a sort of likeness to kindness, may not be kind at all? This is a painfully difficult truth for us to swallow in the world in which we live. If we can do something and get an immediate response of happiness, it is as if we have done our duty. I would actually submit to you that when we simply give our neighbors everything that they want in the way of niceties, just politeness, we are in fact producing the very opposite than any good in them. We're actually being apathetic toward them because it's so easy. The fact of the matter is, is that every single person on planet earth needs Jesus Christ more than they need anything else. As Paul uses the language in Galatians 4.19, they need Christ formed in them. The root in the heart of being kind to our neighbor is presenting Christ to our neighbor because he is the only one in whom there is wholeness or satisfaction to be found. In fact, I would argue that our society increasingly hates itself. When we neglect the one and only Savior, the only source of life and peace and wholeness, when we replace that with a sort of niceness that simply meets the desires of an individual for the evening or the weekend, we're depriving ourselves of the only medicine that actually answers to our problem. My wife and I had the privilege to be at um, a pretty nice hotel over Sunday and Monday last week. We were out in this patio area um, sitting on a, a really nice and comfortable, virtually outdoor couch. We happened to overhear a conversation in an area that was, I will mention, supposed to be the quiet area. And that was not being respected that day, I'll tell you that right now. Because I heard a conversation that went on and on and on and on and on and on and on about Game of Thrones. My goodness, I've never seen it. I don't know. But apparently it can sustain hot tub conversation for hours. Painful hours, in fact. 
Same conversation delved into all sorts of matters of sheer meaninglessness. And friends, we don't need to be philosophers at every single moment in life. But it was a painful experience, and I looked over at my wife, and one of the things that you always have going on in a church are different senses of what we need. Very often people, people feel as if we need you know, more recreational opportunities. Those are fine. They're great in church. But I looked right at Heather, and I'm like, good grief, Heather. We need more Bible studies. We need more appetite for the things of the kingdom and the things of God and the things of Christ because we can be believers in Jesus in name with a baptism and still be enthralled with these things that give no life or hope or purpose. Kindness implies that we know what our neighbor needs. See, here's the thing. You could easily reason this way. What if I've been patient with my neighbor, but here's the thing, and I've been kind, but my neighbor is more Christ-like than me? What do I do with them? If they're more Christ-like than me, and kindness, the heart and soul of it, the crux of it, is in, is in seeing Christ formed in our neighbor, what do I need to do for them? Would you believe this is a truth, friends? One of our biggest excuses for not being kind or thoughtful toward people is the presumption that they are better than us and therefore do not need us. Why do I need to be kind to her? She looks like she's doing fine. Why do I need to make a gesture toward that individual? He seems like he's doing great. Paul notably adds third in this long definition that love also is not jealous. When we have this disposition toward our neighbor, where their good is an excuse to not, to not be kind or patient, an excuse to be apathetic toward them, the root issue is jealousy or envy. Envy is arguably the opposite of Jesus' love command. See, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. When we are envious and when we are jealous, what we are actually saying is that I hate myself and therefore I hate my neighbor who has better or more. I hate my story and my circumstance and my situation. And in fact, I'm bothered at the good experienced by my neighbor. Love has no such disposition, friends. To begin with, whenever we look at our neighbor's situation, we say, I want his money or his wife or his job, or I want Michael's hair. Friends, you can never actually have another person's possessions the way they have it. Michael's hair took a long time to get. He had to work on that. Friends, no matter who you are, your neighbor's money is not the same thing in your hand. That man who made millions, should you simply have his money, it does not mean that it will do you well or that you have his life or you have the discipline with which he maybe made them. Do you realize how insane it really is to envy another? Really saying you want someone else's story. And you have to ask if someone else's story would really even be good for you and if perhaps it's even good for them. See, here's the thing. You cannot love but out of a disposition that knows your own story to be an epic novel of redemption. If you don't know your own story to be a story of the Father's love for you such that he sent his son to die for you so that you would be a productive member of his kingdom if you don't know your story to be that way try 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 to not envy hopeless it will be but in jesus christ 
I would just challenge you every time you have a good meal, every time you find yourself on a vacation, every time you find yourself with an opportunity to sacrifice, say these words to the person nearest to you, whether it be your wife or your friend or your children. Good grief, the Lord sure loves us. How frequently does that passing reflection come about in you that you'd say, good grief, our God loves us. My wife and I get out for nice dinners. I try to make that a point every time. Look at this good food we're eating. Is it not clear that our Lord loves us? At this point, we have yet another objection, though. You could say, well, okay, isn't reveling in my story, Brant, a sort of boasting? Maybe I do know my story to be this grand, epic tale of what Christ is doing for me. But then wouldn't I boast? Paul adds, therefore, patience, kindness, non-jealousy. To these must be added, not bragging or braggadocious boasting. Love doesn't brag. This problem that we have in bragging, this problem that we have in boasting in ourselves, whether verbally or in our hearts or minds, it is perhaps the opposite of jealousy. Perhaps you know that you need to be loved. You know that your soul and your heart longs to love. And when we boast, when we make ourselves the subject and object of both of those things, we are saying that we can be sufficient unto ourselves. Perhaps in my, my need to be loved can be met by me and my love for self. Perhaps my need to love can be met by me. Once again, directing my deepest affections to myself. Friends, if you try not to boast, if you simply labor not to make your own achievements your number one set of celebrations, you will fail. You'll fail, we all will. Our boasting has to be replaced not with silence or holding those things in, but with boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has already told us how to boast. He says in chapter 1, verse 31, my boast will be in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us celebrate who we are, not as an epic tale of our own heroism, but an epic tale of the one who saved us. Let that be our boast. For without it, we can't love. Once again, we're met with objections. Can't boasting in the Lord, though, Brant, even that become a sort of pride? Short answer is that it is, and it can. And therefore, we have a fifth element added added to this description of love that it is not arrogant. If you're wondering what I mean, we have an example of this in Luke 18, 11. We have a Pharisee saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers and unjust and adulterers and all the rest. Friends, we can make it our aim to be the best at praising God, the best at boasting in God, and implicitly what we're still doing is cultivating arrogance and pride in ourselves. Every single turn, there seems to be a byway that would lead us down a path that is the opposite of this grand attribute. The alternative to being arrogant is what Paul says in Philippians 2.3, and this is where many of you will level with me and be like, Brant, this is to the point of ridiculousness. Paul says to regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Regard other people as more important than yourselves. This is the humility with which Christ entered the world. This is the humility that is commended to us. It is the opposite of arrogance. And this is where we're most inclined, perhaps, to say this sounds completely unrealistic. In one respect, it is. But let me impart to you certain perspective on it. If we are fascinated only with our own story, there's something a little bit crazy about that because that's the story that you all know so very well. Your own story, your own tale is a tale with which no one is more intimately acquainted than you, than perhaps your own Lord. To really regard other people in any way as even as important as ourselves, if not more. To regard people as the necessary objects of our patience and kindness. You have got to believe in God's loving kindness and his providence in creation, wherein he has placed these other people in your world for a reason. To be a source of another tale. In a certain respect, you have more to learn from everyone in this room and everyone in your life than you do from your own because you're studying that already. You've seen that already. To say I'm going to be patient with people, I'm going to maintain relationships with people, is to say I genuinely need other stories than my own. I genuinely need to hear and to learn about God's love, his kindness, his grace, You need to learn about his providence through others. Not be arrogant to regard others as more important than ourselves is to sacrifice, to have relationship with them and to be near them. I'll say this, if you don't have some hint of this disposition, all of your gestures toward friendship will fall flat. If somehow, some way, every time you're having a conversation, it somehow turns into a situation where you are there to essentially air your mind, where you are there essentially to correct and to change and to shape other people into your model and mold and image. Even the most persistent gestures of friendship to gathering together in fellowship will fall flat. There has got to be some hint of genuine belief that these others are an essential part of our growing and knowing our Lord. Even though here we are still met with objection as we go into verse 5, some of you will say this, and this would be an honest objection, Brant, isn't that sort of love downright eccentric and intimidating if I should carry about and love so boldly? Paul therefore adds to the fact that love is not patient, if rather is patient and kind and not jealous and not braggadocious and not arrogant. He adds this description, it does not act unbecomingly. In short, what that word means is love is not rude. Love is not devoted to a wholesale upheaval of society and everything that is normal. Yes, we ought to love our neighbor in Christ with the aim of sharing Christ with them, but we should not interrupt a procession in a wedding to share the gospel with the bride. It's a bad idea. It's downright rude. We should not. We should not be the sort of people who in the middle of a lunch rush, as I was a server, a waiter in several restaurants, and have much responsibility before me to get the food out to the tables, we should not in that moment stand up on a milk stand as if a street preacher of the gospel and submit that that is rather kindness. It's not. 
It's not loving. When you're being corrected by your boss, it's not a good idea to share the gospel probably with your boss right then and there and let him know he's a sinner in need of a savior. These things are rude. Sometimes out of an aim to be loving in a bold way, we do these sorts of things. And we need to remember the words of Paul. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. There is something shameless about the gospel. But that doesn't mean that you're not ashamed of anything. See, if you're always belching at inappropriate times, uh, undisciplined to the degree that you can't get along with your coworkers and you disrespect every authority, it really isn't powerful to declare, I am unashamed of the gospel. All your friends will say, yeah, dude, you're not ashamed of anything. No surprise. The reality is, is that love acknowledges that the structures that God has placed in the world are loving and kind to us. Friends, despite all the abuses in the social structures round about us, from government to education to every other thing in the public sphere, you're indebted daily to these realities and institutions. And if you don't know yourself in some way to be loved by God through them, if you look at all of these organizations and orders in the world as simply oppressive, then you're going to have every reason to be rude. In such a way that you can't maintain relationship with people because everything, indeed, the world is a vampire and against you. And so we ask this question further. If love is, in some respects, polite, we could easily ask, well, could that sort of love then ever place itself in uncomfortable circumstances as a comfortable love really love? And therefore, we have this seventh description that love does not seek its own Friends, love proceeds from the knowledge that we already have all things in Christ. Love is not this appetite that makes us want to simply maintain the status quo in normalcy because it's comfortable. We already have all things in Christ. We don't need to look at circumstances and ask primarily, what do we have to gain? Love does not measure itself even by spiritual increase. Friends, if our motivation when we feed and clothe and house and visit others is ultimately some pragmatic end that unless, unless we have an immediate conversion or unless we have immediate gratitude or unless somehow our deeds of righteousness get heralded to the world, if that's the motivation for it, the motive isn't love. Lord Jesus encourages us this way in Matthew 25, 34 to 40, that when we feed and clothe and house and visit. That is to say, moms, when you do laundry and you clothe. That is to say, brothers and sisters, when you show up to a small group there to have fellowship with your neighbor. When you do these sorts of things, Christ says you have not done this to mere men, but you've done this for me. Our motivation for being people of such a disposition is not to seek our own. It is not even to increase our list of successes. It is to serve our Lord Christ in our neighbor. Once again, we are left with this objection and ask yourself if this is where you're at about now at number seven in this description. Brant, if I try to keep all of that up, I'll tell you what I'll be like. I will be the most irritable person on planet Earth. Because that is a labor, unlike anything I've ever set before myself for even a short time, much, much less as a disposition of life. And if you would believe it, what does Paul say? But that in addition to all of these things, love is not irritable. Good grief. 
It is not easily provoked. Friends, you ask yourself what's going on when you're irritable. I'll let you know um, when I'm irritable. I'm irritable the one day a week when um, I have to do the homeschooling. Uh, I have one day a week and my wife leaves me an assignment. And usually the night before she tells me the assignment and I'm pretty tired and I don't pay as much attention as I should. And she tells me just how to do it and to get it done just right. See, when you're trying to teach someone and you actually haven't done proper preparation for how to teach it, that is a recipe for being um, incredibly uh, irritable. And I've been there many times. I find that I'm irritable when reality contradicts my plans or expectations for it. That's when I'm most irritable. I notice that when I orient my mind the night before for what I actually have to do, I can execute it with greater ability. Friends, we're going to be irritable if we simply overload ourselves with activity. I note very often in the name of having a more enjoyable life, we often fill our life with activity. And at the end of the day, we're not more happy. Providence may overload us with more than we ever thought we could handle. And that's fine. That's God's business. But that's exactly why we've got to be careful that we're not overloading ourselves indefinitely. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but um, according to this passage, it is unloving, get this, it is unloving to carry on under an untrue sense of yourself or the world. It's unloving. It's hateful. It is hateful to suppose that we can and should be doing more all the time. It renders us people who are incorrigible, incapable of not being easily provoked when we carry on under mistaken ideas about how this world should be we set ourselves up to be broken we'll hear people say everyone at work is mean to me but i've been so kind i've been so nice shouldn't they like me doesn't jesus say the world hated me they will hate you did have you heard this very often people will say my christian friends let me down I don't know what would possess you in reading the Christian scriptures, the Bible, to think that your Christian friends are incapable of that. What did Jesus' 12 friends do when this man went to the cross? Were they there interceding for him or was he left alone? He was the son of God. Where did the Apostle Paul, whom you might have thought of as being the most endeared individual in the New Testament, end up in 2 Timothy at the end of his life? He says, I'm in prison and everyone's left me. See, when you set yourself up for this sort of idea that this is the way the world should be, you've not read the scriptures and asked your Lord, Lord, what could conceivably occur? And you carry on as if this is how it ought to be. You find yourself irritable, frustrated, easily provoked. Friends, we are told that holding a job, having kids, and even loving other people is downright tough. Jesus says, my burden is light. But friends, he does call it a burden, and it is light in comparison to that of our sin and what the world would place on us. Friends, unless we know ourselves to be loved in Jesus Christ, despite the difficulties of our circumstances, unless we know ourselves to be loved in him, unless we know that he has told us just what to expect, we will not be able to love our neighbor without being easily provoked. 
our natural inclination is to say, well, Brant, even if I suppress my anger toward my neighbor, I don't say anything good grief. I am still going to, in my heart, remember other people's slights, how they let me down. I'm going to have a list of their wrongs, and it's going to affect how I interact with them. And so does Paul add that love does not keep a record of wrongs. I want to be clear what this means. It doesn't mean that you don't form an idea of other people and you don't allow their reputations to define them in some way. We all have to do that. In fact, when we search out officers of the church, we've got to consider their reputation based on what they've done. To love people with godly correction, we've got to know about their past. But we don't keep a record of wrongs in this sense. That we aim tit for tat, To repay evil with evil means even more that we don't even seek with our neighbor when we're engaging in godly correction to correct them on everything. You'll learn this in your marriages. What it says in Proverbs 19.11 is that um, the wise man overlooks a transgression. There are times when it would be best to let something go, to overlook it, to not let it be foremost in our mind. You know, I'll even say this, if furthermore, when we do receive correction, we meet that with even more exhaustive correction for the other person, people will eventually quit correcting you at all. That is the worst place to be. We don't keep a record of wrongs to get perfect repayment or to correct every single one of them. And once again, you can only do this when you understand how gently God has loved you. How many of you have been believers for maybe a decade and you can remember yourself 10 years ago and all of the sins that were still there, all of the things that you were doing that were in blatant opposition to Christ and his kingdom, but he has been gracious with you. And 10 years later, there's a long list of things you don't do anymore, a long list of other things you do do now because the Lord's been patient with you. At this point, we have yet another objection. We say, friends, well, you know, even if I don't repay others' wrongs exhaustively, I know deep down in my heart I'm going to rejoice when other people see my enemies or those whom I simply don't like in their true colors just like I do, and I'm going to feel a camaraderie and affection with them. When someone says to me, I've noticed that Sandy was mean just like you did, I've noticed that Todd is unreliable. Yes, Todd is my favorite name because we don't have a Todd in this church. I've noticed he's unreliable and you've noticed the same. This is a strange recipe for disaster in us because we will find ourselves rejoicing in the unrighteousness and transgression of others. And this is what Paul says love does not do. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. I ask you right now, when you see your enemy's failures, whether it be at work, whether it be those near to you in family relations, or it even be in the church, if you are so bold as to call your brother or sister your enemy, do you kind of love it? I think we do this more than anywhere else in politics. We all know that the best way to get our person elected is actually for the other person to engage in some horrible blunder. That's the better recipe for getting elected than coming up with brilliant policy or great ideas or having a deep character. The better recipe, the more sure thing, is that the other guy, the other candidate, has some gross moral failure. We live in a society, therefore, 
where we are gleeful to discover, gleeful to expose, gleeful to share on social media. Oh, all of the crimes and evils and errors of the other team. I don't mean to suggest for a moment that we don't have a right to the knowledge of these sorts of things as a public, but there is a disposition of heart that loves it. How twisted that is. We love it even more than we love the truth. Jesus told us that blessed are those who mourn and lament mournful and lamentable things, not those who rejoice in it. Friends, we only stop rejoicing in unrighteousness when we actually know the truth that um, Satan, sin, and death are defeated in the righteousness of Christ, and that righteousness is going to conquer all. Not the failures and the blunders of the enemy. The devil is not defeated by the increase of his evil. evil. He is not defeated by his own blunders so that humanity might wise up to his schemes and how useless he is. That's not how the gospel works or how the victory is won. Therefore, many of us might say, Brant, well, if I'm not sharing and rejoicing in the evil of others, then I guess I'll have to be silent because that's the main thing going on in the world. And this perhaps is the heart of the whole problem. Love, we are told, rejoices in the truth. I'm going to tell you all something right now. The single most true thing that is happening in reality that has happened in all time, the single most true thing is Jesus Christ. The single most true thing going on in the world is that this Christ has bought on the cross definitively everyone who believes in him. He has hamstrung his enemy, the devil, and his kingdom is going forth like a bowling ball, breaking the chains of sin and mowing down opposition. If you don't believe it, read Daniel 2.44. That's exactly how it's described. That is the most true thing happening in this world. The sad truth is you will not hear about this most true thing on the nightly news and you will not hear about it on talk radio and it is rarely shared on social media. You will not find this grand truth by looking at your physical health, your bank account, or the progress of your career. You won't find it there at least, always, and certainly. You can only learn about this truth from Christ himself speaking in Scripture. And when you see it there, you'll see it everywhere. It's the only place you can learn about it told that love rejoices in the truth. It celebrates. It is not silent. Trinitas, I will tell you, I am burdened, burdened by a Christian church that so often is bold to announce to the society impending judgment for neglect of the poor, systemic racism, murder of the unborn, no-fault divorce. These are all terrible things. But let me tell you about a true crime. A true crime is believers in Jesus Christ with mouths that are slow to rejoice, if not silent and rejoicing. We have nothing to rejoice about. That is criminal. What is criminal is a people who know this mighty truth and don't rejoice in it. 
You might think that when God threatened his people with curses for disobedience, he talked about all those things I mentioned first. But you know what he says in Deuteronomy 28, 45 to 46? He says, all these curses shall come upon you because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. If there's a criminal behavior that we engage in as believers, friend, and that we ought to lament to high heaven, it is the sheer lack of rejoicing in which we engage. That it's almost like pulling teeth sometimes to hear a believer rejoice. So many of us will say, well, Brent, that sounds inauthentic. I like authentic people. People who are honest about their burdens. Friends, we will be authentic <clears throat> We will mourn things that are mourn-worthy. We will do so, however, like the Psalms do. The majority of the Psalms are laments, but every single one of them ends with a word of hopefulness and rejoicing. Except for three, and those three are followed by Psalms filled with rejoicing and hopefulness. It is never the final word. We even read of Jesus Christ that in the very worst and most painful situations in reality for the joy set before him, he suffered the cross. We have something to rejoice about and we cannot love our neighbor unless rejoicing is on our lips. This leads us after the 11th description to a crescendo, which we'll consider all at once. We're told that love bears all things, that it believes all things, that it hopes all things, it endures all things, and that love never therefore fails. Friends, when we hear believes all things, we're not talking about naivety. The all things are the truths in which we rejoice. And in all circumstances, it believes those truths and those promises in all places, times, In every relationship, we hope, as Christ has taught us to hope. And here's the thing, guys. As impossible as this grand description of love sounds, I hope you can meditate on this note for the remainder of the day. It is this basic truth. As impossible as this definition of love sounds, if you believed in Jesus Christ, no matter what you are, no matter how far short you have fallen of it, you are destined. You're destined to be made into lovers just like this. Your ultimate destiny is to be a person, if you are in Jesus Christ, who has patience without end, kindness without end, who does not boast in anything but the Lord, who rejoices in the truth, who does not celebrate unrighteousness in any measure or degree. This is what we've been promised. It sounds so unbelievable that it's at this sort of a point where when Paul's talking about these things that he introduces concepts like predestination because I think if you did not know this was God's plan for you from eternity, you'd have trouble believing it was possible at all. It says in Romans eight twenty nine, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. The good news about this passage, friends, is that we have not been describing some abstract set of characteristics that one day, somehow, someone might embody. What we have just read is a description of a man who walked this earth in righteousness. This definition, love is, is not hypothetical because this love that is, is not a what, but a who. 
It is the eternal God, the I am, who has been love for eternity past in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and has never ceased to be. It is God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ, walking and breathing in human flesh and yet embodying everything that we have just said. Good news for you and me is that uh, it is also God the Holy Spirit, love himself, the gift of God himself, living and acting in us and conforming us to the image of our creator. And I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. There was a great theologian in the 12th century. His name was Bernard of Clairvaux. He was a theologian who spent his career meditating on the love of God in Christ. And he left us with this grand truth that Luther and Calvin and all the reformers loved. He said that to even long to love like Christ is itself a gift. It is the fruit of saving faith. If you can even hear that description and say, good grief, I know that's not me, but I wish it was. I wish that was me in greater measure. That right there, that hope, that desire is a gift and expression of the love of Christ unto you. So I simply ask you, believer, if you're with us today, do you long to love like Christ? Do you lament at your failure of it? Then let your heart rejoice in your being loved by Christ today. You're destined to be this. And out of that rejoicing will come the truest love for your neighbor. Unbeliever, if you're with us today, I just simply say, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, do you feel the burden of the love of Christ? Do you know yourself to be at odds with it and even judged by it? Better to surrender to it then. Become the glad victim of it. And to go on resisting it. Place your faith in Christ and he will conform you to himself. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, always your word confronts us. Always your word challenges us and at the same time encourages us like no other truth can. Your word contains the truth in whom we rejoice. Contains the gospel. Contains the only true portrait of the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Mighty Jesus, I pray that we would leave this place not a people slow to rejoice, not a people slow to be kind, that rather we would embody that very love by which we have been loved and in so doing know you the more. I ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your mighty Holy Spirit. Amen.